Welcome, everyone. All right, this is a review session. I'd like it to be a discussion. We'll be doing some practice. We'll be doing some meditation. We'll be doing some chanting. So that's the plan. So let's begin with a few minutes of silence just to settle, settle ourselves. I'll set a motivation for our time together tonight, and then we'll start looking at chapter six. So bring your attention to the breath for a few moments. Make sure your spine is upright and relaxed. And then we can bring our attention to the breath. So let's cultivate our motivation. It's getting more and more difficult for me to remember what it was like um, before COVID-19 radically changed all of our lives. And so we, here we are in a global pandemic. Some countries are actually managing this situation quite well. And countries like the United States of America Canada, Mexico, a number of countries in Europe are really struggling. So I find it quite, quite extraordinary that we have this opportunity to engage with the Dharma right now, to review some material that Venerable Children taught actually a year ago, and to make the time to have the interest, but mostly to have the opportunity, given what everyone else in the world right now is dealing with. Some people right now are going to work. Some people who are working on the front line as doctors and nurses are getting into their 
PPE equipment, or they're getting out of it, or they're in the middle of the shift, and their whole focus right now is on the ill, the very sick. And if they're not in a COVID ward, they're in some other place in the hospital, assisting people and their families. Countless numbers of people now are grieving. So many people have lost someone, either due to COVID or another illness. Some people right now are in quarantine. Some are hospitalized, feeling afraid, I'm sure, and very alone. Many people around the planet are involved in delivering packages, putting in outrageous numbers of hours and risking their own lives just to deliver a box to an address. The impact of this virus is staggering. It goes beyond illness, it is impacting livelihoods, businesses, and people going hungry. And so let's really dedicate the merit of this time tonight as we engage with reviewing the material. And let's dedicate this to those who are much less fortunate than we are right now who are struggling just to stay alive for whatever reason. And for so many people who have absolutely no ability yet to work with their minds in these very trying circumstances. So let's dedicate ourselves to our practice and do what we can for others, even during a lockdown situation. And be a kind support. And may this experience that we're all going through really firm up our bodhicitta aspiration. the dukkha that we're experiencing and witnessing is deep and vast. So we must become fully awakened for the benefit of all. So we're going to review chapter six tonight in the foundation of Buddhist practice. And the chapter is titled, How to Structure a Meditation Session. So you may think, well, that's maybe not the most interesting chapter in the book. Maybe I should check and see what's on Netflix. But please don't do that yet, because (laughs) 
every word in this series. So here's the visual. We're reviewing volume two. So far, there are five volumes out. There's at least another five on the way. Every single word in this chapter is there on purpose. And the purpose of this, with His Holiness and Venerable Children, is to lead us to full awakening. So actually, it's not a boring chapter. I'll try not to make it boring. You know, if, it's, if that happens, that's my fault. But it is truly not boring material. And Venerable Children started teaching this chapter a year, well, more than a year ago, 13 months ago, in November in 2019, before she went to Asia. So at that point, can you imagine, we didn't know what coronavirus was. We knew that cats could get it. But COVID-19, at that point, that wasn't in our thoughts then. We had other things making us crazy and sad and depressed, and we had no idea what was coming. And in fact, there was a very interesting article months ago in the New York Times. They've got satellite imagery showing that there was way a huge spike of traffic, cars parking at hospitals in Wuhan, close to the emergency department. It was happening at least in November, probably as early as maybe August. But at that point, you know, even then they didn't know what was going on in China, and they knew that people were getting some kind of pneumonia. You know, we don't, we'll never know really when people really knew what was going on. So that's when we started that chapter. Um, there's so much material to cover, I can't possibly do it in 75 minutes. So my goal tonight is to pull out sections that struck me as important. So if they don't strike you as important, well, just go back and review those teachings. There's at least three or four videos on this. So that's a minimum of six to eight hours on this, this chapter alone. And so to give you a hint about the importance of this chapter, one of the first things that Venable said about this is that this chapter is giving instructions on how to contemplate the rest of the teachings in volumes 2, 3, 4, 5, through 10. Maybe there'll be 20 volumes. But this is the key chapter that's going to guide us. And, you know, so this is the one to keep coming back to if you think, well... Gee, I don't know what to do now in my practice. Okay, we can't say that. We cannot say that. This is telling us clearly. So I'm going to start with the first sentence, and this first sentence could be the rest of the evening just on its own. So His Holiness, what I'll do just for shorthand tonight is I've um, copied and pasted from the book, and I've copied Venerable's um, commentary. So when, I, when it's the book, I'll say His Holiness, and then you know it's His Holiness and Venerable Children. And then I'll say, it's Venerable Children. I'm hearing an echo in here. <laughs> so that, that's the code language that I'll use. I'll probably forget at least a third of the way in, and it'll just be a blur. But you know what? It's His Holiness and Venerable Children talking to us. That's the main thing. Okay, here's the key sentence for the night. Our happiness and suffering is directly related to the objects of our mind, to the objects our mind focuses on, and our thoughts and interpretations of them. Uh, 
A mind habituated to focusing on our own or others' faults, exaggerating them, and angrily complaining about them is what kind of mind? An unhappy mind. So, I don't know about you, but I'm sad to say I forget this all the time. Our happiness and suffering is directly related to the objects our mind focuses on. So Venerable Children goes on here and she says, Our happiness and suffering, what we turn our mind to, what we think about, influences our happiness and suffering in so many ways. Immediately it influences us. So we're ruminating about the past things that hurt us. What kind of mood do we have? You can just call it out. Ruminating. She hurt me many times. Resentment. Resentment. Sadness. Sadness. Maybe. Revenge. (laughs) Rage. Self-pity. Concentrate on the kindness of others. What kind of mood does that bring? Happy. Joyful. You know, we could have learned this in kindergarten. And I suspect if you had a good teacher in kindergarten, you probably did hear this, right? She didn't, he didn't, she didn't have to call it Buddhism. It's just like, hello, come on kids, let's pick it up here. So when we focus on certain objects that lead us to get angry or have desire and clinging, then we create karma, destructive karma that will ripen in miserable experiences. This makes me laugh. Can you imagine in a kindergarten class talking about karma? I mean, how good would that be? You know, you'd have kids outside at recess reprimanding each other about, you know, if you continue doing that, you know, that's really bad karma. That's going to ripen a grade two. (laughs) I love it. May we have that experience. So then Venerable goes on, of course, and says, when we focus on the good qualities of others, the qualities of the three jewels on generating the aspiration to bodhicitta, then we create merit, which will bring happiness. So what is going on in our mind right now not only influences our happiness and suffering right now, but for a very long time to come. And then I put this in bold because she said it clearly. This is really worth remembering when our mind goes south. So she said it clearly. And she's still saying it. So is His Holiness. So is all our teachers. So when we get angry and resentful and discouraged, we need to stop and ask ourselves, what question? When we get angry and resentful, what should we ask ourselves? What am I thinking? Do I want to die with this mind? What good is this thinking, this way of thinking doing for me right now, now and in the future? And what am I doing to myself, allowing my mind to get stuck in all this? What am I doing to myself? And then she says it again, because of course she has to. She says it again. What is going on in our mind right now influences what we experience now and in the future. So then she says, you know, what do we do? We have a pity party. We're good at that, right? But she says, why not instead give ourselves empathy and sympathy? So we think that someone else has to do that for us, right? 
I mean, do you still have that mind that sort of wants to go to someone at some point and say what you're sad about and who looked at you oddly today or who didn't help when you needed it most? I mean, do you want that from someone else, the sympathy, honestly? I see a lot of nodding heads. Um, sometimes. Depends on the day, right? She says, of course, venerable children, no one else has to do this for us. We know that person who got hurt. We can give ourselves some empathy and sympathy. And then the question I have to ask myself is, yeah, that's right, of course. But do I believe that? And then when I look at my day some days, it's look like I don't believe it. I still have to go to Venmo Trini and knock on her door at the writing studio. Okay, back to the book, His Holiness. A mind steeped in seeing others' kindness, appreciating it, and wishing them happiness is a peaceful mind. Mental purification is needed to release destructive mental habits and cultivate beneficial ones. Transformation occurs through familiarizing ourselves with wholesome ob objects and beneficial perspectives. So throughout the night, I'm going to go on tangents. Hopefully they relate to what is being discussed in chapter two. If they don't, you know what? I have a good intention, so you'll just have to forgive me. <laughs> so when I read this, I thought, you know, Buddhists just don't, aren't the only ones who benefit from doing this. Everyone does this. And who am I seeing this do a lot lately? One of my heroes, who's one of my heroes? Fauci. Dr. Fauci, yes. So there's this wonderful um, video, you should look for it. The title of it is COVID-19 Reflections and Updates. And it was aired um, live stream November 2nd and it includes Dr. Fauci, my hero, and two other new heroes that I have, Paul Farmer and um, Dr. Jim Yong Kim. And Dr. Kim and Paul Farmer are co-founders of Partners in Health. So you've got these three heavyweights in the world of infectious diseases and all of these things getting together for a chat with a fellow, um, his name was Adine George Daly at Harvard University. So this is a 45 minute talk, it's really accessible. And why I'm bringing this in right now is Dr. Fauci, as you've probably noticed the whole time, is so optimistic. He is viewing one of the most challenging things in his whole career, and he's you know, advised six presidents. He's been through many epidemics where a lot of people have died. And when you look at this man, he is a picture of optimism. And why? Because he is basing his information on four things. Get this, science, facts, evidence, and truth. Now, he could still be very depressed about the whole thing, right? I mean, can you imagine? He's not sleeping much these days. He hasn't been sleeping much probably for months. He has been the recipient of incredible negative feedback. His life has been threatened. I'm sure it's an ongoing thing. His family's lives have been threatened. And when he's in front of a camera, for our sake, he is absolutely optimistic. He's putting his mind towards something positive. And in that 
uh, video, I'll just tell you a very short thing. This is a quote. He said this, This outbreak is going to end. It is a finite thing. It's going to end. Now, he's not going to lie to us, right? He said, But the social determinants of health are not going to go away. They're not going to go away in a year or two or maybe five or ten. And he said, we should use this extraordinary shame of disparity as an impetus to make a multi-decade commitment to changing the social determinants of health, which probably start before someone is even born. And so he's, when, we, when he made that statement, he said, you know, that sounds really optimistic. Maybe it's too optimistic. But he said, I'm going to hold to this, and I think we should. The fact that the people in poverty, people who are in all kinds of situations where they don't have access to health care or enough food or the right kind of jobs or enough money for what they're doing, this is shameful. And this is impacting who dies and who gets sick. And that has to change. And he does that with a very positive mind. He's an inspiration to me. And then Venerable Children mentioned this, again, continuing with this idea of keeping our mind directed towards virtue and seeing the positive in things and what that does for our mind. She said, Tibetans in Chinese prisons practice seeing the kindness of those around them, even though the guards were starving them and torturing them. And yet some of these incredible practitioners just focused on kindness. We heard that from Venerable Children earlier this week when she was um, relating the story about the monk Paldin Gyatso. So, fortunately for most of us, uh, we haven't had the experience of being jailed and tortured and all kinds of these things. But we've had experiences of being in very challenging situations. And I'm wondering if anyone would like to share what you did in a very challenging situation where you forced yourself, because you remembered your practice, to see the kindness in that very challenging situation. And there might be some people online who have something to say as well. I don't know, probably about 10 years ago, but I had an unexpected, quite a, a serious physical crisis that showed up. They put me in the hospital and realized that I was kind of going not in a good place. Um, and they popped me into a an ambulance and took me down to Spokane. The whole community, had, I think it was Venerable Jimmy in a car behind the ambulance all the way down. And when I, um, when Venerable finally tracked me down, she said, remember the kindness of the people who are caring for you. So from the time I had gotten admitted into the hospital, the entire time remembering their kindness and their care for me, not knowing really what was happening, and doing everything that I could to respond to their instructions, to their advice, their wisdom, their care, and came through the other end, but without their kindness, not knowing what was happening, it would have, my mind could have very easily have gone to anxiety and worry and fear. But um, they held me in a lot of love and they held me with a lot, of, and with science, truth, facts, and with a lot of compassion it really helped my mind to just settle into whatever happens, happens. And of course, Venerable's 
instructing me as well. But it was really quite a profound experience of being held and entrusting your life into somebody's hands. Thanks, Fenwell Semke. I remember that situation clearly. Well, when Venerable Jingmi and I got into a car wreck in India outside of Kushinagar where we knew zero people, the only reason we survived was the kindness of others. Right? Someone loaned us their car so we could get to a safe place. Um, the whole way, you know, the doctors never charged us. It was, it was like a really poor part of India. I was amazed. It was like a hole in the wall clinic. They told me uh, the hotel told us we're, we're going to take you to a specialist, and it's like this hole in the wall. People are being carried by their friends, you know, because they don't have wheelchairs and everything. There I am with the one very small wheelchair from the hotel that somehow fits me because I'm Asian. <laughs> I'm like, if anyone is bigger, how would they get there? Yeah, and it, it was unbelievable. The doctor made the cast for me by hand with plaster or something. I had sprained my ankle. And he, he refused to charge us. He would not accept the scent from us. Yeah, so the whole journey back was just kindness of others. Yeah. So I think we would spend a lot of time tonight sharing these stories. Things will come to you. You know, write them down. Write these things down. Use them for your meditation. Thank you, Venerable Damchu. One more, Venerable Losang. This is very simple, but very practical because it's the kind of thing that comes up commonly. Um, I was upset with a friend and I just thought about this, this practice of being, remembering the kindness of others. And I thought about all the kindness that a friend had given me. And, this, like, and I also thought about some other friends who had been fighting and um, they had, um, been friends a long time, and one incident comes up, and that's all they focused on. And I just thought, you know, I turned it around, and I thought, there's been so much more kindness. Why would I judge this situation by that? When really it was pretty much just my own bad mood. <laughs> mm -hmm. And so it's just something that can be used every day when things come up. You know, you get annoyed at someone, and think about how much you benefit from that person. Thanks, Venerable So we'll continue with the book. Then, um, His Holiness. Familiarization occurs in both formal meditation sessions and in the time between sessions when we go about our daily life activities. Because our unsatisfactory experiences and cyclic existence have no break, neither should our efforts to transform our mind and free it from afflictions. As long as we are under the influence of ignorance and karma, it is necessary to make continuous effort on the path and to discipline and transform our mind in both meditation sessions and in the break times. So then Venerable Children unpacks that paragraph and she says, you know, we practice hard and then we think we have to have a break, right? We've done really a lot of work this week. We had six days of retreat and tomorrow we're gonna to get a break. We're gonna do something fun. So then we go to a movie or, well, not here, obviously. We go and get our favorite snack. 
Maybe. It's, well, it's not looking too bad back there right now. <laughs> There's a snack shelf at the back of the room I'm referring to. But the chocolate goes very quickly, I must say. Um, or we all go out and make our favorite calorie-rich dessert. If we are not at the Abbey, we might go out for dinner, right? And then His Holiness is saying, you know what? There's no break in samsara. So there should be no break in our Dharma practice either. <sighs> there should be no break in our trying to accumulate virtue. So just keep our mind in a virtuous state. You can relax and have your mind in a virtuous state, right? So don't relax and then do something non-virtuous. Seems pretty sensible. And then Venerable Churdan went on to share that one of her Dharma teachers said that Dharma students are like little puppies. And you get them clean, and then they go outside, and they roll in the mud. And that's kind of what we do. We do some practice, and then we do some non-virtue to celebrate. So, you know, we've all done this, you know, and now maybe one's really, really virtuous, and this doesn't happen anymore, but I can... I'm sure you can remember, <laughs> maybe it happened yesterday. You know, I don't want to know what you did, actually, but what I'm asking myself is, why do we do this? Or why did we do this? You know, we really put out a lot of effort. Then we do some non-virtue, Thrimukunga. Why? Um people say, oh, I, I just want to relax, I'm going to watch TV. And then someone in a discussion group said, but that doesn't even really relax my mind. And I think it's because we're so used to the non-virtues, that's relaxing to us. You know, it takes no effort to just head in the direction of the afflictions. And we're so familiar with it, we don't have to think. But when we crave virtue, oh, that takes some effort. Yeah. Anyway, I'll speak for myself, maybe. Thank you. Any other thoughts about why? I think I, st I still have quite a good amount of confusion about where happiness comes from. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I, I, I more viscerally know that happiness comes from some jewel dates or some cookies or a nice cup of tea than I do it comes from practice. It's, that's what I've been cooked in for many, many more mm -hmm. years. And that's what the messages I've received much more than. So the default is like, you know, I feel good from this practice. And then I want a little hit of something. And so the mind goes to where I am more familiar with where I think happiness comes from. Yeah, I think it's the way that we were raised, what we saw, what we saw on television, you know. In my first year of teaching, guess what the teachers did on Friday after school? Headed to the bar. And that was the culture that I thought, I thought that's what you're supposed to do, right? I'm a first year teacher, so of course you're going to go. And I was like, wow, this is really weird. And this is what we call fun. And it's, I think you're exactly right. There's total confusion about what brings happiness. Did you have a hand up, Venerable Samke, and then Venerable Jampa? really starting to get a handle on this whole idea that Venable says over and over again is that we are so attached and swept away by the appearance of this life. Yeah. 
you know, I keep saying, what is she talking about? What is she talking about? But every time I turn my attention to something that the senses have picked up, that's it. I've done purification, I've done retreats, and then I just turn my mind to something that's going to hook me in for a little pleasure hit, and then that's it. Mm-hmm. I'm just, I, I'm, I'm, I'm confused, I'm, I'm hallucinating. Yeah. Then we'll jump up. Yeah, so I don't know what people have said, but something is kind of up. It's um, the lack of ability to look within. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Something to think about, something not to beat ourselves up about, but just to reflect on, you know, and have compassion for the past. And that let that, you know, steer our mind and our choices in a, a more thoughtful direction from here on. So then His Holiness and Venerable Children go into talking about different kinds of meditation. So I'll quickly go through these. Um, so from the, His Holiness is saying there's, um, there's several ways of speaking about various types of meditation. And one way is in terms of stabilizing and analytical meditation. Stabilizing meditation channels the energy of the mind and generates single-pointedness. It enables the mind to remain on a virtuous object, such as the Buddha, or a neutral object, such as the breath, for as long as we wish, without distraction or laxity. Hmm, I wonder who that we is. <laughs> Someone can. And it enhances our concentration. Concentration brings many benefits. It enables us to investigate objects such as impermanence and emptiness intensely, and to familiarize ourselves with virtuous emotions such as love and compassion without distraction. Just given the amount of material that I have here, I think I'm going to direct you to doing some of the reading about this on your own. Um, So, in all fairness, analytical meditation enables us to penetrate and understand an object. Meditation on emptiness cannot be done unless we understand what emptiness is and we can identify it correctly. So then Venable goes on to say that all of the reflections in this book, Volume 2, and actually all the books, um, they're analytical meditations. And thinking, the thinking that goes on in an analytical meditation has a big impact on our mind. And then again, she has to say this again because this is repetition number four or five, right? Because we need to hear it. For example, our happiness and our suffering, the objects we focus on, and therefore the way we interpret them and the mental states that arise from that. She says, if we sat and could contemplate that and make a lot of examples from our life and have a deep understanding of that, Imagine how your life would change if you really understood that deeply from your own experience. So I thought at this point we're going to do some meditation right now because it's wonderful to hear these words over and over again. But let's do the meditation that she's talking about here. It's one of our favorites. What are we going to meditate on right now? Mind's the source of happiness and pain. So... You can find this meditation. This is the newest version of this book. It's called Guided Buddhist Meditations, Essential Practices on the Stages of the Path. This is the original version, Guided Meditations on the Stages of the Path. 
Now, what Venerable Chodron did out of her kindness and wisdom was that she put in four meditations, three meditations. Well, she added some meditations that are actually not part of the traditional set of meditations. And she did that because she knows that now people who are interested in Buddhism, Westerners, we didn't grow up with the Buddhist worldview. And I would imagine that would be true of some people living in a Buddhist country who maybe, you know, were growing up from a family that wasn't Buddhist. And so she writes in the book this. Some of the initial reflections on basic Buddhist approaches are helpful. These first three meditations help us understand how our mind operates in daily life and how our mental processes, our thoughts and feelings, influence our experience. So it's mind is the source of happiness and pain, taking the ache out of attachment and transforming an attachment. Oh, and actually the nature of the mind. That starts that. So that was her, that is her kindness. And since she has mentioned this now at least six times, let's do this meditation. So the advice is if you're doing this for the first time, which is not true for anyone here in this room, um, but if you're online doing it for the first time, don't pick the worst scenario in your life for this. Go a little bit easier, go softer in yourself. If you're here in this room, go for it. You know, go for the juice. Let's make the most of this time. Okay, let's check our sitting posture. So the first thing to reflect on is that we're going to bring to mind a situation in our life that was disturbing. And as we bring this situation to mind, pay attention to what you're thinking and feeling. Don't get all caught up in what the other person was saying. Pay attention to how you felt, what you thought, and especially how you describe the situation to yourself. Now take a look at how your attitude affected what you said and did in that situation. How did your words affect what was going on? And how did the other person respond to what you said and did?
And now, since we're doing this in a settled, more calm place, we can ask ourselves, was our view of the situation at the time realistic? Were we really seeing all sides of the situation? Or due to our afflicted mental state, which was really limiting what we were able to comprehend, were we actually instead just seeing it from the self-centered mind of I, my, me, and mine. So now I'll run the situation again from this calm and settled place. How could that whole situation have gone so differently had our mind been open and relaxed and curious? Free of self-centeredness. mind and heart filled with warmth. How could that have changed your experience of that situation? And so the conclusion that we want to arrive at in this this meditation is to really be aware and to continue to work at this awareness of how we interpret events. 
and to really put effort into cultivating beneficial, realistic ways of looking at the situation when these challenges arise. So it's a very powerful meditation to do. We did it in a very short form tonight, but it's a good one to keep doing probably daily. Okay, I'm scrolling through here because I'm going to get to this next part that I think is well, it's all important. Okay, so another type of meditation involves vis- visualization. For example, imagining, imaging a Buddhist deity and its mandala, imagining being and acting like a Buddha. And this kind of work that we do with our mind encourages us to create the causes to become one. And Venerable Children then said, not all types of Buddhism actually use vis- visualization. And in fact, some people have asked her over the years, well, why are you visualizing? You're just adding more mental clutter when you do that. You know, if you just meditate on the breath, you take care of that problem. So why bother with that? And then she says, this is His Holiness and Venerable Children, the mind has the natural tendency to conceptual." T- conceptualize all the time. So what we're doing is we're taking that afflicted tendency to conceptualize and we're flipping it so that now we're thinking of Buddhas and Buddha realms. And when you do that, what does that do to your mind? When you think of Buddhas and Buddha realms, lifts it up, right? Makes it more positive. So that's what we're doing when we're thinking of Buddhas and Buddha realms. So we're taking the natural tendency of the mind to conceptualize and flip it and use it for a positive goal. So this past week, we're doing that with Chen Razi. Um, is New Year's two weeks from now? Kind of. So two weeks from now, we'll be having the New Year's retreat. We'll be focusing on visualizing Vajrasattva. And then the winter retreat, we're going to visualize Green Tara. So there's a lot of visualization opportunities coming up. In a BBC talk that Venable gave, um, I found this really lovely, the way she said it. I mean, she's always sharing about her practice and how she works with her mind. So this was a BBC actually on attachment. And she said, when you look carefully at our objects of attachment, we are actually attached to the feeling from the object. And then we impute that feeling on the object. And then we want more of that thing. And she says, that's why visualization practice works so well. Some of those feelings of joy and bliss and acceptance 
and being understood, you can replicate that in your visualizations and your meditation practice without needing an outside object to get attached to. This is a very good antidote. Like, she says, when you're lonely. What could you imagine when you're lonely? Thousand arms of Chenrezig giving you a great big hug. That's what Venable says to do. So visualization, we're doing that all the time. We're just using it now in a very positive way. Similarly, Venerable Churjan goes on to say that when we recite mantra, again, people say, well, why would you recite mantra? You're cluttering your mind with sound now. And then again, our mind has this natural tendency to say rubbish. So when we recite mantras, we're flipping that tendency to chatter, and we're instead doing something very constructive. Mantras are syllables that are realizations of the Buddhas, that the Buddha spoke while in deep concentration. We recite mantra in an attempt to get into the state of the Buddha's mind. So now I'm going to go off on a little tangent for a minute. Maybe it'll wake people up. Um, When Venable actually started teaching this chapter, she sort of paused in the teaching. And I guess recently that week, um, she noticed that after we recited the Heart Sutra, we were then reciting the purification of interferences. And we were doing that because in the Blue Pearl of Wisdom book, that follows the Heart Sutra. And the reason we're still chanting the Heart Sutra is because when Ling Rinpoche was here in 2018, was it, or 17? 18. We asked him about what we might do to prevent a polluting smelter to be built in our county. And so he said reciting the Heart Sutra would be good. So we started doing that. We've been doing it every day since then. And for a while, we would also add in this purification of interferences. And Venable said, well, you don't do that there. That you would do in a teaching to purify interferences. So she said, what you can really do, if you really want to do more to prevent that smelter, is Tara's specialty is actually dealing with interferences. So she said, recite Tara's mantra. So right now, we're going to get everyone online to join us in doing this. We're going to recite Tara's mantra. Now, I'm just going to give you some things to think about, first of all. We're going to do this practice for the winter retreat. If you've never done this practice before, you can still do the mantra recitation with us. And what we're going to do right now, because also His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, um, was asked by a a group of people that he was visiting somewhere, probably online, they asked him what to do to dispel hindrances with COVID, and he recommended chanting Tara's mantra. So let's dedicate this recitation that we're going to do right now to COVID-19, to this being resolved, that people have the help that they need, that you know food, food scarcity is going to be resolved. All the problems that are challenging us in this country right now, racial problems, tension, everything. Let's dedicate this to people who are grieving, who are sick, to the vaccine getting to people in a timely way so that, you know, um, we can resume life eventually. So I'm going to ask the resident community to come up, and we're going to chant Tara's mantra 108 times. And 
so if the community could come up. We'll chant this 108 times, and then when we stop, um, I'll ring the bell to indicate, or the gong to indicate that we've done a whole mala. Then the community will go and sit down, and we'll sit in silence for a few minutes. And you can imagine that Tara is on the crown of your head and the head of all sentient beings, and this green light is filling our body and mind. And all living beings on the planet are having the, the image of Tara on their head, the um, Tara's on their head, and they're being filled with this beautiful light. And then notice when we stop the chanting. So if you're at home, and you actually can't chant out loud because people are sleeping now, or you know, maybe you just can't. Um, just notice how your body feels when we stop chanting. Notice what's going on in your body and mind. Om tare to tare to reso ha 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 om tare to tare to so To 
tare tare soha om tare tu 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 tare tare soha om tare ちゅちゃれちゅれそはおんたれちゅちゃれちゅれそはおんたれちゅちゃれちゅれそはおんたれちゅちゃれちゅれそはおんたれちゅちゃれちゅれそはおんたれちゅちゃれちゅれそはお
주자를 주래소 하온자래 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 And let's continue with the visualization of Tara on the heads of every living being, on our head being filled with light. So the recitation of mantra is very powerful. It can really change the energy in our mind and body. And I had the opportunity recently, I had some personal leave time this past week. And I was actually sitting in my office and the community was in this building chanting. And I couldn't hear the chanting, but I could feel the vibration. And at first I didn't know what I was feeling. I thought, going on so I went outside and that's when I could hear the chanting and the feeling I know this sounds flaky but the feeling was very positive so when our mind gets really in a southern direction I guess I shouldn't say that that's criticizing that part of the word when our mind gets negative Sorry, Venerable Trini, you'll have to forgive me. When our mind gets negative, you know, let's do mantra recitation. It's a wonderful antidote to that. All right, I'm going to have to skip a whole bunch of stuff now. Very beautiful teachings. And this is the section now where Venerable and His Holiness are talking about the interrelationship of the Lam Rim topics. Now, before we launch into this, the Lam Rim is really the core of our practice here at the Abbey. This is, this is the foundation of our practice here. It's what we are doing every day. And so Venable, talking about analytical meditation, she says, and the, His Holiness say this, analytical meditation on Lam Rim topics is critical at all levels of the path all levels. So Venerable Chodron says, that means 
that whatever level of path we're on, we should be reflecting on the Lamrim meditations. We don't graduate from them and we say, I've mastered precious human life. I've mastered the meditation on death. And now I'm going to go on to the real stuff. And she says, the more that we get into the Lamrim topics, the deeper they get, especially when you start bringing in bodhicitta into your understanding of them. And when you start bringing in emptiness into your understanding of them. And we think that when we meditate on the emptiness at the table, that's one thing. But she says, what about the emptiness of precious human life? And the emptiness of the six disadvantages of samsara? So right now, I'm going to call on people um, to share. They, they've been alerted to this. One person may be surprised. But um, just to give you a little bit of history, way back when Venerable Children was the spiritual teacher in Seattle at Dharma Friendship Foundation, a number of people sitting in this room were her students. And they were not in robes, and they didn't have short haircuts. But they were getting teachings from Venerable Children early on, mid-90s, early, early 90s. And most definitely, the Dharma education at DFF was Lamrim topics. And so I love hearing these stories. And I'm going to invite Venerable Semke and Venerable Tarpa to start first. This is a bit of a surprise for you. But Venerable Semke will start in. And you can fill in what's missing. I love this story. This inspires me. I tell it when I'm in the chapel about the fact that when you two were here and there was just you two and venerable children and the cats and there wasn't a lot of teaching going along, along because there was a lot of hard work to do and you two were in the meditation hall. Do you want to start off, Venerable Semke? I love this. I don't know. I've been racking my brain on, on what... Oh, the well, fact that, starts, that you would lead. Yeah, yeah yes, that, that part. Okay. So I don't, I'm trying to figure out the day somewhere between when Venerable Tarpa showed up in 2005 and I think before the next wave of people came here to live here. Um, the meditation hall was a year old. It was brand spanking new, laminated floors. It still had the shine and the smell of newness to it. And there was a period of time where it was pretty much Venerable, me and Venerable Tarpa and the cats. I don't know whether you were an anarchist Garka and I was lay, or you were Shikshaman and I was an Anagarka. It was in the real early stages. And we would be sitting on opposite sides of the meditation hall. And, and before it had carpeting, it had like a cavernous kind of uh, sound to it. And we would literally, because this was the instruction, is that you go through the topics of the Lam Rim and you cycle through them. So one day, Venerable Tarpa would do Precious Human Life. The next day, I would do the eight worldly concerns, death and impermanence, karma, refuge, the disadvantage of cyclic existence, and we would, and morning and evening. So, so we went through the cycle really fast, but it was one of the most, um, I mean, it was so new, and it was so, I mean, we had been doing it at DFF with her for six or seven years prior to that. So it wasn't like she was training us something new. The fact that she had stopped at the Dharma Center, had founded an abbey, and was continuing to do and directing 
all of her students to do it. And here's Venable Tarpon. I would have a lay person come and visit every once in a while and then go away. But the two of us were like these little uh, bookends in the meditation hall. And, um, and, and some, I don't know. And, and it all depended. <laughs> would you like to add your memory of this? <laughs> But and, and the other and the other part that was is that we promised each other during that time that the other one was not going to run down the hill when the other one was having a hard time. We made a we made a pledge to each other. If you if you're going to go get afflicted, Tarpa, I'll stay centered, and if I go heading down the road, you hold on to the back of my shirt and you make sure that I don't leave. And we kept this pledge pretty close for a number those first few years. And we're still here, we're still but it, here. it was the, the Lomber was helping us to stay here. And what I remember is that you did this for at least two years. This is what I wanna get across to people. It doesn't stop. Venable Tarpa, do you wanna add one more? I didn't know where this was going. I, <laughs> I was here, not here for the beginning, but what I, so I wasn't sure you were gonna get to that part because what I remember about this is the other thing is we led the meditation on the Buddha twice a day uh -huh. for two years, which was fantastic. And actually, I have to confess that I'd only led one Lam Rim meditation before I moved to the Abbey. And we weren't very good at them because John Pell couldn't stand it. <laughs> he, he thought we were so boring. He just couldn't stand it. I remember when he came here and we were still leading the Lam Rim and we were pretty dry because we hadn't experienced it yet. I hadn't, I couldn't bring it alive, so he was bored stiff. But what I remember about the first two years was learning about the meditation on the Buddha practice too. And also, um, I'm, Simke's not the one, you might have thought about running down the hill, but I couldn't keep myself in the hall back then. And part of the kindness was when I would, my mind would just go south and I would have to actually leave the hall and go walk in the woods and she would take over for me because I couldn't actually lead, you know, I couldn't stay put. Yeah, that's what I was. I, <laughs> I remember we had the agreement to each other and that we wouldn't let either of us fly down, fly from the coop. But um, I also, at that point, we weren't supposed to leave the hall, but sometimes my mind was just so out to lunch, I couldn't stay in the hall and I'd have to go walking off in the woods and I was just, <laughs> so anyway, we're we digressing now and we, we got better the, the importance of the Lam Rim in our practice so His Holiness says thank you <laughs> but there's going to be more about this the Lam Rim transforms our mind by giving us an overview of the entire path and establishing the Buddhist worldview firmly within us. And then Venerable Children goes on and unpacks this further. And she says, establishing the Buddhist worldview firmly in us, that is so critical. Because you may ordain or you go on a long retreat. And if you don't have this Buddhist worldview that you get from doing the Lam Rim topics every day, twice a day, that's my insertion, then when you run into difficulties in your practice or when garbage comes up in our mind and we get confused and we get unhappy, if you don't have that worldview, then you're going to ditch the whole thing. That should sound shocking. Venerable children said those words. You're going to ditch the whole thing. 
meaning your practice, maybe everything. Because when the awareness of rebirth, cause and effect, karma and its effects of what samsara is, if we don't really believe that, then we have a problem. We start missing whoever it is out there, right? We get angry at a relative and then all of a sudden the dharma seems to be the problem. Or the ordination seems to be the problem. I wouldn't have this problem if I wasn't in retreat. And all this stuff wouldn't be disturbing me, Venerable says. And instead of seeing that the problem is the afflictions in our mind, our craving for happiness is so strong that we're going to follow it. This should be shocking. And it's the Lam Rim meditation points. Lam Rim meditation that points out to us the defects of our craving for happiness. Now, Venerable Children makes the point, you know, wanting happiness, that's fine. That's not a problem. It's the craving for happiness that is the problem. And then another thing, our mind never thinks of the disadvantages of craving, right? All we think about are the benefits of getting that object and that we're craving, craving, craving. And in the long term, that is the problem because then we give up the practice and we go for the immediate pleasure. That is the voice of experience talking. She's seen it. So it's really, really important that we really ground ourselves in the Lamarim topics daily. So, Venable Trini, I wonder if you would kindly share a little bit about what it was like in the beginning when you were first learning the Lamarim topics at DFF and maybe what it's like for you now. Or if that's not a good question, you can share something else about the Lamarim. <laughs> Well, I was thinking about. Oh, I was thinking about the Lamrim. Um, actually, she was teaching the Wheel of Sharp Weapons when I started attending. Mm. You'd wonder why I ever came back. But Venerable um, <laughs> I said that to Venerable Sankara. She said karma. Um, but what I remember is that um, I don't know what the depublication date is on that book. The first time we did Vajrasattva retreat, 12 of us from Dharma Friendship Foundation in 1997, eight, 1998, mm. we did the three-month Vajrasattva retreat. And um, the Lamrim Chenmo was not translated into English. Um, guided meditations on the stages of the path had not been published. In fact, it was after that that Venerable started to record those meditations mm. and made the first set of um, audio things sometime between before 2000. Mm -hmm. um, we must have had handouts from DFF, and I was checking my Lamrim book from um, FPMT. It was a 90, 96 publication, so I must have had that on retreat. Mm. So we were having to go from our notes and from Venerable's teachings and from handouts. And our instruction was, six, we did six sessions a day. Six sessions a day, you're doing Lam Rim. Six sessions a day, three months, doing Lam Rim. Through it, and through it, and through it, and through it. And it was the best possible Dharma foundation I can imagine. I am so 
grateful for that time because wow. as as you know as obviously you're somewhat taken to go off and do a three month retreat, but then to come out with feeling like oh, this is what we're doing, and how powerful and how transformative that was then. And so what what I didn't really get until just hearing you talk tonight is how venerable creating these outlines are from her notes right the outlines she's created from her practice that became guided meditations on the stages of the path that became those the um, recorded audio things that have become the presentation that she's doing with his holiness the dalai lama through these books so it's a powerful connection and the more i talk to buddhists from other traditions and i'm not dissing anybody I want to say this right up front, but what I don't hear is the kind of grounding in the Buddhist worldview that Venerable Thupten Chodron teaches. And that if we practice as laid out, um, yeah, it'll take us all the way to enlightenment. Thanks for sharing, Venerable Chodron. From this chapter, which I love this chapter, the thing that's so beautiful in the Pearl of Wisdom book, the first book, the meditation on the Buddha as she spells out how to think of all the different parts. And that is the Buddhist worldview put into the sadhana. Mm -hmm. Every single part of the three principal aspects of the path is in there. There's everything is in that sadhana, you know, so that's kind of wrapping it all into one, into a practice. And it's exactly what the topic is tonight. Thanks for pointing that out, Venerable Tarpa and Venerable Chuni. Oh, <laughs> the memory just trying to get stirred. In the first few years of the Abbey, what we would do too, as far as the sadhana practices, every month we would circulate through a different sadhana. Yes. So after that, after yes. that, when we had a little bit of a, you know, three or four years, we had some people here. We would do Medicine Buddha for one month. Yeah. We would do Vajrasa for one month. Yeah. We would do Chenrezig for one month. So you really get Lama Sankapa and... Guru Yoga, yep, we do uh, Medicine Buddha. So we got to get very familiar with the sadhana practice yeah. and the power of visualization. Right. So then to follow up on Venerable Tarpa's point, that Buddhist Buddha meditation that lines out how to meditate on each of the parts, how to think on each of the parts, is the same parts that show up in every single sadhana. So if we understand and really deeply understand that Buddha meditation, then we know, then we know what to do with every deity sadhana that we have. Thank you very much. I'm envious about the six sessions with the Lamarim. I guess that's what we'll do this winter. All right, I'm going to finish up here. I've barely touched the chapter, but it's such a rich chapter. So, His Holiness and Venerable Wright, the Lamarim engenders great conviction in the path and a correct motivation for spiritual practice. So Venerable said, these two are really important qualities to have if we're going to practice, to have great conviction that brings strong refuge and to have a correct motivation. And she says, if we don't have those things, then our mind goes and we become lost. So I was going to take us through another meditation. It's, we can't. Um, 
In another teaching, Venerable actually demonstrated, you can find this in the series of teachings uh, where she showed how to meditate and bring in bodhicitta. She took us through the six faults of samsara. Um, so you can look for that in the teaching. It's very beautiful. And I'll close with this. And this is His Holiness on Venerable Children. Our meditation sessions and our daily life activities flow together, one following the other without pause. To indicate this relationship, the great masters call our daily life activities break times between meditation sessions. Both play a, a role in our spiritual life. Meditation sessions give us the opportunity to practice in a more focused way. Daily life activities provide the chance to test how well we've integrated the meditation topics into our lives. We may meditate on fortitude in the morning, but the real test is when we have to deal with a difficult person. Observing the thoughts and emotions that arise in our minds during the day will give us an idea of the qualities we need to strengthen in order to counteract the afflictions that arise frequently in our minds. Spiritual practice does not occur only when we recite a text or meditate. It occurs when we walk down the street, clean our room, interact with others. Dharma practice involves watching our mind and keeping it in a wholesome state no matter what we're doing. We can practice anywhere and at any time. So we've used up our time. Thank you to everyone here in the room for sharing. Um, it's a magnificent chapter. It's a magnificent book. It's a magnificent series. And there's more to come. So, And magnificent dharma. So let's... Um, sit for a moment before we do our dedication prayers and just bring to mind people that you'd like to dedicate this practice this evening to. And in fact, the whole week, we were just at the end of um, a six-day retreat. So imagine all of this virtue at our heart like a great big ball of light. And this light is reaching out throughout the universe, bringing living beings what they need physically, and what they need spiritually. <clears throat> 